All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with Vancouver's crime wave, the break-ins, the broken windows, the random, unprovoked assaults. Vancouver business owners are sick and tired of it, and I will speak to two of them in just a moment. We have covered this story closely on the show. On Monday's show, I spoke to Howard Chow, Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department, and I asked him about some of the mayhem we're seeing out there, including all these business break-ins. Have a listen. Let's talk a little bit about some of the property damage we're seeing right now. We heard that global news report there about the broken windows that we're seeing reported. Is, is there a surge in broken windows right now? There is, in particular in certain neighborhoods, like our downtown core. And you've probably seen windows uh, that have been just boarded up by plywood because there's also supply chain issues because of the, the significant numbers of broken windows, but also um, you know, difficulty getting glass at this stage. So some of these, and you talked about it at the top of your show, where where it's for tens of thousands of dollars to steal a fifty dollar item out of the window. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's heartbreaking when you have businesses and retailers trying to make a go of it after COVID, and and they're struggling as it is, and they're unable to get insurance, and it's coming out of their bottom line. Okay, it's Vancouver Police Department Deputy Chief Howard Chow speaking to me on Monday's show. Let's talk to some local business owners who are dealing with this now. John Boychuk is the owner of Davy Village Tanning, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, John. Good morning. Hey, John, thanks for coming on. Also on the line is Dr. Zoran Raznik. Dr. Raznik is a veterinarian. He's the owner of Urban Animal Hospital. It's also on Davy Street. Zoran, thank you for coming on today. Good morning. Okay, thank you to both of you. John, let me go to you first. Davy Village Tanning, I know it's been a popular business there in the neighborhood, but I know you've had trouble. Tell me about some of the break-ins that you've experienced there. Well, Davy Village Tanning has been around for more than 35 years. <clears throat> and in its 35 years, I've been on that street for 25. And of those 25 years, I can honestly say that in the last year and a half, I have never seen such a crime wave that you almost feel like you're being personally attacked as a business, like you're being targeted because it's just month after month after month of either a smashed window, a uh, high degree of shoplifting, prolific offenders that you've seen in the neighborhood just coming back again and again and again. And I try to work with the BIA, who has been very supportive and getting alerts out. I work with the VPD in the community police office, and everybody basically comes back with the same answer, saying there's just not enough resources out there to deal with what's going on. Why, why Everybody's do they, doing their best. Why do they want to break into your place? What, what are they stealing? What are they stealing, suntan lotion? What the heck do you steal at a tanning salon? Oh, they'll steal a $10 bathing suit. They'll steal a $20 bottle of moisturizer. A lot of the times, the individuals that are going in, it's just a crime of opportunity or desperation. Yeah. And they'll grab whatever they can to sell it for pennies on the dollar. In the meantime, it's costing me thousands of dollars each time there's one of these break-ins. Yeah, I mean, this is the tragic irony of it. You get windows that are being smashed that are worth like five grand for someone to steal an item that's maybe worth 50 bucks. Let me ask, uh, talk to Dr. Zoran Raznik about it now, Urban Animal Hospital. Dr. Raznik, tell me about your what happened at your business. You had your windows smashed too, right? Oh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, Urban Animal Hospital has been there also for 36 years uh, 
Uh, we are recent owners, uh, Dr. Haik and myself, and we had in the last couple of months uh, two um, windows smashed, uh, um, and it's basically nothing was stolen. Uh, it was just an act of vandalism, and I think mental health issue yeah. has, um, you know, a, a place in, in that, and that's kind of sad. Um, and we talked about uh, erecting the metal fence like other businesses, but my partner said, like, what the Davy Street is going to look and what our business is going to look like a prison. And uh, I'm kind of concerned about, you know, the whole image of, uh, you know, Davy Village and uh, the neighborhood. And uh, um, in the morning when I go to work, I mean, Almost don't feel, you know, not safe, but un- yeah. unpleasant with people, you know, uh, sleeping on the street and, you know, um, it's I know kind of very upsetting. I know you've got a very busy veterinarian practice there. I can hear some of your patients barking in the background there. Can you tell me about the, did someone smash your window during the day when you had like people waiting in your waiting room? Is that what happened? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that was the first uh, first time someone was just passing by, took the, the the sandwich board from the neighbor's neighbor's business and smashed the windows. When we had clients uh, in waiting area, and luckily no one was injured, but uh, it's just getting very sort of concerning and upsetting. At uh, uh, why did why did someone do that? Like you think it was they weren't trying to steal? They were just which is random vandalism. Like why did they do that? Mm-hmm. I, I think at, at this instance was just, uh, um, I think, m- mental health issue. Yeah. Uh, like it was just kind of uh, random. It, it wasn't the only business that has, uh, there was several um, uh, businesses in the road that the windows are just smashed. Randomly. Yeah, that's got to be that's got to be upsetting for your clients, your patients that are waiting there when the windows start smashing in on them. Exactly. What what was it like for them? Well, everyone was kind of in shock and uh, what's happening. And, uh, uh, you know, we were, we were concerned, obviously, for the safety of uh, our clients. And uh, yeah. um, uh, we were seriously thinking of, you know, erecting the, 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 the metal fencing. But then, yeah. at the other hand, you know, it's just not not the way that I would like uh, not not only our business to look, but the whole Davy Street. I've seen other businesses have the metal, you know, chain and fencing, and you know, I'm just looking from the perspective of uh, uh, the whole uh, city of Vancouver, especially Davy Village, and you know, like uh, uh, tourists coming in and, and looking right. and say, like, what is this? Like a war zone or something? Well, exa- yeah. exactly. I mean, you, you know, it, it seems kind of tragic to think you got to put bars on the window of, of a veterinarian hospital. I mean, that's that's crazy. John, your thoughts on that? Like, do you have uh, do you have bars on your window now? There now at Davy Village Tanning. I actually have had several businesses throughout the city that I've moved into over the decades. And whenever there are bars on the windows, I find them to be not very appealing and don't give people that sense of security when they're walking down. It gives the owner security, but not the individuals on the street. And so I always take my bars down. People keep on telling me, put up gates, put up 
more security, put on uh, film on the glass to stop it from breaking. And I've mm. done some of those things, but nothing that is going to take away from the true character of the neighborhood. And all this that has been going on with the highlighting of it, people, your listeners included, when they think about coming downtown, does it sound like the Davy Village is a place you want to visit now? And yeah, after the last yeah. couple of years of this going on, people are now looking at going other places. And I can tell you that's hurting the small business in the heart of this city. Businesses that have been around for generations are struggling because it sounds like Davy's not a safe place to go. Well, let me reassure you, Davy itself is a safe place to go. Yes, we have a high amount of individuals on the streets that are panhandling. Yes, we have a visible amount of people that are homeless, but that's throughout this entire city. This is something that's going on province-wide, and this is something that really needs to be addressed on more than just a local level. It needs to be a team of individuals across this country coming together to solve the mental health issues. You need more than just putting people into temporary shelters, into temporary homes. They need the support services to be able to get back into society, and they're not getting what they need to get that next step. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the campaign now for permanent daylight saving time. Now, just this past weekend, we switched the clocks ahead by one hour, spring ahead, so we all lost an hour's sleep. Is it time to scrap this time change exercise. Well, American senators think so. Yesterday, the U.S. Senate passed a bill to move America to permanent daylight time. It passed unanimously. When does that happen in the United States? Republicans and Democrats actually agreeing on something. Have a listen to this now. This is Republican Senator Marco Rubio speaking yesterday. Just this past weekend, we all went through that biannual ritual of changing the clock back and forth and the disruption that comes with it. And one has to ask themselves, after a while, why do we keep doing it? Why are we doing this? This really began back in 1918 as a practice uh, that was supposed to save energy. And since then, we've adjusted it. Today, daylight savings time, which started out as six months, uh, was extended to eight months in 2005, clearly showing you where people's preference were. So we're doing this back and forth of, of clock changing for about 16 weeks of standard time a year. Now, uh, there's, I think the majority of the American people's preference is just to stop the back and forth changing. Okay, Senator Marco Rubio speaking yesterday. Let's discuss now with my guest, uh, Professor Miriam Judah at, from the UBC Brain Lab. She's a professor researching circadian rhythms at the Department of Psychology there. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Miriam, thank you for coming on today. Hello. I would just like to correct that I am in the Department of Psychiatry at UBC. Psychiatry. Uh, yes, Thank as a you. research manager and then as an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University in the Department of Psychology. Oh, okay, boy, I, man- I totally mangled your uh, no title worries. there. My apologies. Okay, let me ask you about your, your thoughts on this. You got the U.S. Senate now, permanent daylight time. What do you think of that? Yeah, so um, I, I think most people uh, don't like the time change and um, scientists specialized in sleep and circadian rhythms are also advocating to um, get rid of the time change. However, um, uh, sleep experts do um, advise that we would move to permanent standard time, not permanent daylight saving time. 
Yeah, this this is the one where you know this is the eternal debate. If we're going to do this, do we move to permanent daylight time or do you move to permanent standard time? Now, this bill that's just passed the U.S. Senate calls for permanent daylight time. You think it should be the other way, right? You think we should go permanent standard time, correct? Exactly, because um, when you move to permanent daylight saving time, you are really uh, ignoring the scientific evidence regarding the effects of daylight on our physiology. So um, I think a lot of people believe maybe that time is arbitrary, but it isn't. There's a reason humans sleep at night and they're awake during the day uh, all over the world. Uh, And this is because we have a circadian clock. We have an internal circadian clock that regulates the timing of our physiology. Uh, So when we when we wake up, uh, our circadian clock uh, increases our um, our alertness. And in the evening, uh, we have a rise in melatonin, which is also regulated by the circadian clock, which then initiates sleep. Uh, And the circadian clock is aligned to sun time, uh, to the light dark cycle of the sun. Uh, and not to our behavior, our social schedule. So we see, for example, shift workers, even after 25 years of permanent night work, for example, uh, do not adjust. Their physiology does not adjust to night work. We don't turn into nocturnal animals or nocturnal species just because we force ourselves to be up at night, right? So we are diurnal, uh, and our physiology is set that way. Right. So if we went to permanent daylight time, like the U.S. Senate voted to do yesterday, that would make it uh, make it more. It would make it darker in the morning hours. Right? Exactly. So what yeah. daylight saving time means is that now our social schedules, for example, work start time and school start time, are now starting an hour earlier in relation to sun time. So yeah. most affected by that are night owls, for example, uh, because. Um, well, uh, night owls don't like getting up uh, early in the morning, but now under daylight saving time, we have to get up an hour earlier, just as most of us have noticed this week, right? We, uh, we changed the time, we have to get up an hour earlier. In the summer months, this is less of an issue because we are getting plenty of daylight and we are getting morning light, which is really important. However, if we were on permanent daylight saving time, we wouldn't get much morning light exposure. So it would right. increase the light exposure in the evening, which seems, uh, you know, like a great thing because our days are short in the winter months and most of us like long, uh, long days of daylight. Right. Yeah. Uh, but obviously we can't change the amount of daylight we're getting. But what daylight saving time does is it forces everybody to get up an hour earlier. Uh, so now we have to get up before sunrise. So, for example, in Vancouver, under permanent daylight saving time in December, the sun would not rise until 9.07. So when most of us are at work already, when kids are already at school, so we wouldn't get any morning light exposure. And we right. do know uh, from experiments that when we don't get morning light exposure, what it does to our circadian clock, it, uh, it, uh, it will delay the circadian clock. So it makes us more night out. And we see this already under, for example, in the city. A lot of people are getting less light in the city than more rural areas. Uh, we also see this when you look at time zones. Uh, people who live west versus east of the same time zone. If you live west, you are, the sun rises later, right? So if everybody gets up under, a, uh, under the same time zone, let's say at 7 o'clock in the morning, 
people who live west will get up earlier in relation to sun time than people who live east. Okay. And we see that people who live west are getting less sleep uh, than people who live east of a time zone. Okay, I think you make a really powerful argument for permanent standard time instead of permanent daylight time for the reasons you just outlined. Let me play another clip here for you from Senator Marco Rubio speaking yesterday in the U.S. Senate. Now, here he makes the opposite argument. He argues going to permanent daylight time is the best thing to do. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. There's some strong science behind it uh, that is now showing and making people aware of the harm that clock switching has. We see an increase in heart attacks and car accidents and pedestrian accidents in the week that follow the changes. Um, the benefits of daylight saving times have also been uh, accounted for in, 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 in the research. For example, reduced crime as, it's light, as there's light later in the day. We've seen decreases in child obesity, a decrease in seasonal depression that many feel during standard time. Yeah, so he goes on to argue there that if you have light later in the day, it's more time for kids to be outside playing later instead of yeah. being stuck behind a computer screen. And that was his point there about child obesity. What do you think of that argument? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is definitely an argument uh, and maybe also reducing crime. Uh, yeah. I, could, I could imagine that is an argument. However, when it comes to our health, uh, I mean, uh, the way I remember how he said this now, he was talking about the time change, right? Not about daylight saving time versus standard time. So when you actually look at the scientific evidence, it is the time change from standard time to daylight saving time that is linked to these increases in car accidents, for example, and uh, increases in cardiovascular disease. So, I mean, the science is quite clear, uh, and uh, one can look that up. So, for example, the World Sleep Society, the World Federation of Societies for Chronobiology, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the National Safety Council. The list goes on of societies of academics who do warn against permanent daylight saving time and advocate for permanent standard time. Um, so we do know that uh, the time change is not great. However, going on permanent daylight saving time will be worse for public health and safety than the time change. Professor Judah, it's always great to have your expertise on this issue. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. Let's talk about those Western sanctions now against Russian billionaires and oligarchs and their assets, especially their multi-million dollar super yachts. Now, these Russian yachts, they are at the top of the hit list for Western countries that have sanctioned these Russian billionaires. Countries are seizing these yachts when they can. I've got an awesome guest on this standing by, former CIA officer Alex Finley, who is doing a great job tracking these Russian yachts all around the world. Have a listen to this here first now. This is Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. Have a listen. Alexei Mordashov's 213-foot yacht was impounded in Italy. Gennady Timchenko's 132-foot yacht was seized in Italy. Andrei Melnichenko's 469-foot, $578 million super yacht was seized in Italy. Sergei Chemezov's $140 million yacht was seized in Spain. Igor Sechin's 280-foot yacht was impounded in France. And Alisher Uzmanov's $18 million resort was impounded in Sardinia. That is just the beginning. Okay, that is just the beginning, according to the White House. 
the hunt for these Russian super yachts all around the world. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Alex Finley. Alex is a former CIA officer, and she is in Spain today, where a lot of these yachts and uh, go to get repairs and maintenance. She is maintaining a hashtag on Twitter, which I encourage you to check out. Hashtag Yacht Watch. And she is studying a lot of these Russian billionaires for research for an upcoming novel. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Alex, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Okay, Alex, this is really interesting story, and I think you've done an awesome job here with the hashtag Yacht Watch on, on Twitter. Let's talk a little bit about these, uh, these Russian yachts. Like, how many of these yachts are there around the world that you're, you've been tracking? Well, I've been following just a handful, I think probably around 20 or so. Um, but I'm, I'm going to add to Gensaki's list there because Spain just seized another yacht today. So that oh. makes seven now. Okay, so, I'm taking a, taking a look at some of the list of these yachts. And one of the ones that jumped out at me was this one that was in Italy owned by Andrew Melichenko, who was a, a coal and fertilizer billionaire. And his yacht... Is the name of the yacht sailing is Sailing Yacht A. Sailing Yacht A, which I don't find is a very sexy name, but man, this is the one that looks like it's owned by like Doctor Evil or like a James Bond villain. It looks it's it amazing. does right. It looks straight out of a James Bond uh, villain's lair, and yeah. he actually owns a second one. So there's Sailing Yacht A, which is the one they've detained, and he owns another one called Yacht A, which is not a sailing yacht; it's a motor yacht. But same. They're both designed by Philippe Stark, so very uh, white, sleek, uh, strange-looking machines. Yeah, yeah it's an ama- if people have ever seen the picture of this particular yacht, it's a, it's an amazing-looking thing. And some of these yachts have got like helicopter pads, and isn't there one that has like a a missile launcher on it or something? <laughs> yeah, some of them have um, anti-missile defense uh, systems. Wow. Yeah, and and the, or their own. Some also have like their own submarines. Uh, some have full size swimming pools in case you don't have enough water already when you're on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then there's this one that it's rumored to be owned by Vladimir Putin himself. This was the one's got uh, gold plated bathroom fixtures. H- has that been settled now? Is that owned by Putin, or do we know? We don't know. That one is Shahrazad, which is yeah. uh, in in Italy, and I my understanding is that Italian authorities are looking into it. It's a seven hundred million dollar yacht, and in fact, she has a companion ship that was built by the same shipbuilder at the same time. They were part of the same project, basically, and that companion ship Crescent is the one that Spain just detained literally like two hours ago or three hours ago. Wow. Okay, that's the breaking news at this hour. My, my guest is Alex Finley, former CIA officer, and she's been tracking these Russian super yachts around the world. Alex, is it difficult to figure out the ownership of these yachts? Because I know these billionaires, they will often go to great lengths to try and hide their ownership of these assets, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, finding the confirming the beneficial ownership is what's going to be the hardest part, I think, for authorities. Most of these yachts are uh, owned, they're managed, first of all, by management companies, and they're all flagged in every 
offshore tax haven you can imagine the Marshall Islands the Cayman Islands those types of places and so it's sort of one shell company on top of another shell company so untangling that to find to go all the way back and find the beneficial owner is very difficult okay and you are able to track some of these yachts because as I understand it maybe you could explain this you, they are legally required to have like a what, like a transponder or something on board that sort of pings out where where they're located. Like that's a legal requirement, right? Correct. Yeah, it's called AIS, and it's it's a tracking system. And every boat, cargo ships, they all have it. It's to it's for safety and security to make sure nobody runs into each other. Right. Um, there are some legitimate reasons why AIS might be turned off. Sometimes ships that are going into uh, pirate waters uh, off of Somalia, for example, or the Gulf of Guinea, sometimes they'll turn them off so that they're not visible. Uh, to any pirates that may be out there. But generally speaking, AIS is supposed to be on legally, yes. Right, but are some of these Russian billionaires and oligarchs with, who own these mega yachts, are some of them turning off that system so they can't be found? That seems to be the case. A number of them have stopped pinging. Um, if, if a ship stops pinging for a couple of hours or maybe a day, that there are reasons that, for that. Um, but when they sort of disappear for weeks or days or weeks at a time, then you then you have to start wondering uh, if it was done on purpose and they're trying to hide. Although it's very difficult to hide a 500 foot boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And where are they going? Like, I, I, presumably, the owners of these yachts don't want to lose them. They don't want to have them seized by a, a foreign power. So are they trying to hide? Like, where are they going? Yeah, so the ones that have managed to flee European waters uh, and even some waters off of the United States and the Caribbean there uh, seem to be heading mostly towards uh, the Maldives and the Seychelles. There's a cluster of them around the, uh, the United Arab Emirates as well. And there's some chatter out there that the final destination may be Vladivostok, which is the, uh, the headquarters for the, the Russian Pacific Fleet. Um, that they may have space for these yachts out there, but there's still a question if they have sort of the infrastructure and uh, knowledge to take care of these these machines. Because these, these types of boats, it's not a little canoe that's sitting in the water. They require a lot of upkeep on a daily basis. Yeah, and speaking of that, like these are super high-tech machines worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and they require very uh, high-tech maintenance. So it's not like you can just pull into any port Right? Does, does that does that limit their ability to 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 go over like the places they can go to? I think so. I um I I have been researching what places have that infrastructure and knowledge outside of Europe, and it's it's very limited. And even if, like I said, even if these place these yachts could get to a place that has space for them, because a, a commercial port, for example, in China might have space for them. But they don't have um, the knowledge or the infrastructure, the services to take care of them. Like you said, th these are incredibly high-tech boats. Yeah. And 600 million is even kind of the average. Um, Eclipse, which is one of Roman Abramovich's yachts, is estimated now to be worth $1 billion. Whoa. So <laughs> it's not like you can just you know pick any random guy with a screwdriver to, to go in and do some service on it. Yeah, Roman Abramovich, of course, people may be familiar with him. He's the billionaire owner of that 
that Chelsea soccer team in the United Kingdom, and he—I guess I believe he's announced he's selling his interest in that that football club in the UK. And he has—I I believe he has two super yachts, right? The Eclipse is the famous one, one billion dollars. That's the one with the missile defense system and a mini submarine and stuff, right? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the the other one is Solaris, and Solaris left Barcelona last week on Tuesday a day and a half before the UK sanctions on Abramovich were announced. So that was quite good timing on his part to get that second yacht out of here. Right. And where can that guy go? Like the, the UK has sanctioned him. Have a lot of other European countries also put him on their list or no? For, for right now, Abramovich, uh, oh, he may be sanctioned now in the EU, but not right. in the US. Uh, Solaris managed to make it to Montenegro, we think, to refuel and it's a little unclear now where she is heading, if she, she was kind of hanging out off of Montenegro for a little while, but she looks now that she's heading south. And we have to see now if she's going to turn and head in towards Turkey uh, or maybe continue down towards the Suez Canal and out to the Indian Ocean. So we're not sure yet where that one's going. Right. And when it comes to these Russian super yachts, these mega yachts, Alex, they're their jeopardy is to be in waters where they have been officially listed uh, for being sanctioned and, and subject to seizure of the yacht, right? So if they are in like international waters or they're in the a port of a country that has not sanctioned them, does that make them safe? Is that what they want? They don't want to be in waters where they can be seized, obviously. So when they're on the high seas, they're okay, I guess. Yeah, on the high seas. But like we said, you know, they, they need service at one point. You need gas at one point. You need food <laughs> for the crew. Right. So, you know, you, you need to go into port. And so then the question is, when they do go into port, um, can European, British and American government officials get cooperation from uh, those government officials of, of those ports where these ships are going in? And so then there's a question if, if uh, there's some co cooperation diplomatically that can be worked out. There's also questions of uh, working with the governments of the countries that flag these ships. I understand that if you can deflag them, so for you know most of these ships, it's not like they carry a Russian flag. They're flagged like in the Cayman Islands or in Malta or something like that. So if you can deflag them, my understanding is then they lose their insurance. And so then you have a, a crew can't take the ship out when it has no insurance. Right. And speaking of those crew members, I, I was reading that a lot of these Russian yachts, they've got, do they have dedicated Russian crew members that have all signed like non-disclosure agreements? Even the non-Russian ones do. So uh, what you see in the, in the number of cases is you have both an international crew, which is more in charge of moving the yacht from one location to another location. But as soon as the principal uh, or their guests come on board, they they may switch out the crew and you end up with an all Russian crew, but all of them have to sign uh, non disclosure right. agreements. Alex, I think you're doing an awesome job on this story and following these yachts around the world. It's certainly great uh, raw material for your next novel, right? When does your next book, <laughs> your next novel, come out? It's coming out in just a few weeks, but I haven't oh. officially announced it yet. Okay, well, good luck with that. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine now and how so many people here in Canada are doing their very best to help Ukraine, assist the Ukrainian people who are suffering. 
helping in the resistance and the defense. And the world has been amazed by the courage and resilience of Ukrainian people as they defend their country. Let's discuss now with my guest, Veronica Cheyenne. Veronica is a young Ukrainian now living in Vancouver, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Veronica, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you for being here. Veronica, I know you grew up in Ukraine, right? When did you come to to Vancouver? Yes, I was born and grown in Ukraine and came to Vancouver in 2017. So this will be my fifth year anniversary this year being here in Canada. Okay, and I know you have you have friends and family back in Ukraine. How are they doing? Yes, um, all my family pretty much and a lot of my friends are back home in Ukraine. And it's been very emotional for everyone, for sure. Um, in different parts of Ukraine, I have family who are in the West, and they are safer for now, luckily. But I, I also have friends in Kiev and Kharkiv and Mariupol, and it's been very heartbreaking to call them on the phone and hear bomb explosions in the background. Oh, oh man. What kind of stories are they telling you? What are you hearing? Well, some of my uh, guy friends in Kiev and Kharkiv, they joined the Territorial Defense Forces, and they are out there protecting their uh, regions. And as well as some of my friends, some of the stories of them escaping the city and being in this giant traffic where usually this road would take an hour, but now it's 10 hours. And while you're stuck in this traffic, you hear air raid strikes. So you have to jump out of the car and find somewhere to hide. So the stories are very different and equally sad. Yeah, no, I'm sure it is. And I know you care so much about what people are going through and you want to do your your part to help, right? Can you tell me about some of the work you're doing? Yeah, so a few days after the war started, I decided to help and do whatever I can. So I started a little personal fundraiser just through my personal social media. Um, and I was very shocked by the response that I got just through my own friends and friends of my friends and reposts. Um, I was able to raise over $12,000 within 24 hours, wow. which I donated to the Kelowna Stands with Ukraine Foundation based in the Okanagan in Kelowna. And we were able to contribute that sum to the purchase of body armors and uh, personal non-lethal defense gear items. Wow, that's amazing. So what, what kind of items are, are they trying to source for people? So what we've been hearing from volunteers in Poland and other countries in Europe is that there's a big shortage of um, bulletproof vests. And we need grade four body armors um, for the military and territorial defense forces, especially, um, as well as ballistic helmets. So we are sourcing them here in Canada. Um, there's a supplier in the Okanagan region, as well as we have friends in Toronto. So essentially, we're just trying to find whatever's left here in Canada and buy this as soon as we can and ship it out to Poland and then logistically figure it out from Poland to Ukraine. There are people traveling to Ukraine. There are Ukrainians who live in Canada, man, who are going back to Ukraine to fight for their land. 
Well, that's amazing. I'm speaking to Veronica Cheyenne. She's a, a young Ukrainian living in Vancouver, doing her best to help uh, for her friends and family back home. So is it difficult, Veronica, to source this type of equipment? Like you talked about bulletproof vests and helmets. Is that kind of stuff available in Canada for you to for you to get? It is a bit tricky, definitely not as easy to source as uh, regular humanitarian items. Yeah. Uh, but because you need a license to first of all purchase and then ship, but I was able to get in contact with Kelowna Stands with Ukraine Foundation, um, and they have all the licenses and logistics figured out. Um, I know that we were able to that was last week to ship 53 body armors and I think around 20 helmets wow. um, to Poland, as well as there was a huge shipment um, going from another foundation in Toronto. It was around 1,000 um, body armors. And we're hoping to raise more funds um, to buy more. It's a pretty costly um, gear. Uh, so my work, I work in advertising in my agency spring, they offered to help me put together this fundraiser, okay, uh, which we started. Where can people help, Veronica? Is there a website they can go to if they want to contribute? Yes, for sure. Uh, it's on fundraiser, as in F-U-N-D-R-A-Z-R.com slash help Ukraine 2022. This is my fundraiser campaign. Okay. Uh, well done. Congratulations to you. And I, I wish you continued success as you, as you help. And uh, I encourage people to help you, too, to do it. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks a lot, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the war in Ukraine now and the popular resistance we see by Ukrainian people against Russian troops. And lots of people may have seen some of these viral videos of large crowds of Ukrainian people taking to the streets and confronting Russian soldiers. It's incredible. Like even when Russian soldiers fire their machine guns into the air, they don't even flinch. They don't back down. Ukrainian leaders encouraging citizens to resist, including the use of whatever weapons they can get their hands on, including the use of Molotov cocktails, the classic insurgency weapons so let's talk about the history of the molotov cocktail now with my guest james stout james is a phd of modern european history and he's been writing about this i'm very pleased to welcome him to the show hey james thanks for coming on cheers thanks for having me appreciate it a lot so let's define our terms here first what is a molotov cocktail i think most people know what that is but what exactly is it yeah, so a Molotov cocktail is an improvised incendiary device. It's essentially uh, a glass container, a flammable liquid, and some kind of rag or some kind of igniter. It could be a chemical igniter. Normally, it's just a rag that you light on fire. Right, so you'd fill a, fill a bottle with gasoline, stuff a rag in the, in the neck of the bottle, and then would, would they typically sort of wet the bottle or wet the rag with some sort of, uh, some sort of accelerant, flammable. too? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. You want to dip the rag in the accelerant and obviously uh, try and avoid getting the accelerant on yourself and setting yourself on fire. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's essentially it. That's that's one of the things I've often wondered about a, a Molotov cocktail. They look kind of dangerous for not only the person you're throwing it at, but, you know, the person who's making it or holding it in their hand. Right. It can be kind of dangerous. Right. 
Yeah, that's it, actually. Uh, like, I, if anyone's listening and trying to make one, I would caution them to be careful. I've definitely yeah. seen people <laughs> set themselves on fire, uh, set their friends on fire, drop the thing. Uh, so yeah, they're they're not uh, they're, they're very rudimentary, right? They're they're very effective, but they can be dangerous yeah. for you as well if you use it. Right. So let's talk about the history of the of the Molotov cocktail, and it goes it goes back to the it goes back to World War Two, right? It actually goes back to before World War Two. So the right. Spanish Civil War is probably where we see them for the first time. Okay. Uh, used by first by Franco's nationalists, later and more extensively by the Republicans. Um, they called them petrol bombs then, yeah. uh, and they mostly use wine bottles or jam jars. But um, if you want to get into where it's got its name, uh, yeah. that that was in uh, the Winter War in Finland, right? So you have the uh, Soviets uh, invading Finland and claiming that their bombs uh, are actually aid packages, that they're dropping food for the Finnish people, uh, which was a lie. Uh, and Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov sort of said this, the Finnish people took that, lied, made it into a joke and said, well, if you're going to give us bread, drop us bread baskets, we'll give you a little drink to go with the meal. Uh, <laughs> and that, that was the Molotov cocktail. Okay, so it was named after Vyacheslav Molotov, right? The Russian, exactly. who, he, who was he again? He was the uh, defense he was minister? Soviet, yeah, that's uh, foreign minister. So uh, foreign minister. if you're familiar with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, it's the same. Right, level. right. Okay, so that's that's the that's the origin of the name of the Molotov cocktail. So I guess like the Russian gaslighting of the people they're invading has been going on for a long time here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, it's eerily similar in that, yeah, you've got sort of this, uh, yeah, this just brazen lying on one hand and then, uh, yeah, a, a, a population fighting against an invader on the other hand. Right. And we see them being used now in Ukraine to resist Russian invaders. And are, are the Molotov cocktails, are, have they been historically popular in a, in, a, in an insurrection, like a, among civilian people fighting back against an invader, an invading force? Yeah, or I think where people come in conflict with the state, right? So where there are, where there are people fighting against state power, the state tends to be better armed and equipped, but the people often tend to be more numerous. And uh, that's where the Molotov cocktails are really effective is if you're using them in large numbers. So uh, yeah. see them in Hungary in 56, see them in Paris in 68. Of course, you see them in Tahrir Square, you see them in the Euromaidan in, in 2014, and you're seeing them right now. So yeah. anywhere, really, where people are fighting the state, you're going to see Molotov cocktails. Speaking of James Stout about the history of Molotov cocktails, can they do a lot of damage? Like, I've, I saw some people encouraging Ukrainians, if you see a Russian tank, throw a Molotov cocktail at it, here's where to, here's where to aim. Is that, like, I can't imagine a Molotov cocktail would stop or slow down a tank, or, or, or could it? Yeah, I think some people get a bit carried away on the internet. Um, <laughs> look, a main battle tank, not really. Um, but then if you look at some of the soft skin vehicles and stuff like the BMPs too, um, Russians will tend to carry their fuel externally uh, on, on the back door of a BMP. And those do catch fire and they, they chain ignite as well sometimes. So the, the troops in there will probably know that those catch fire. And so you can throw a Molotov cocktail at them. They also have wood boards that they use to get unstuck if they're in the mud. Uh, just like you would use in your truck. Um, so they know that their vehicles catch fire, right? So if you can make that vehicle catch fire, or if you can persuade the people in the BMP that the BMP is on fire, then they're probably going to get out, right? And that makes them a much softer target than they are inside the vehicle. Sounds like a bad tank design if you've got the, yeah. the fuel on the outside. 
Yeah, the the, uh, the BMP ones are kind of they're a bit older now, but they're not the best design. Yeah. I think uh, that seems to be consistent with what we're seeing on the ground with this invasion by Russian forces, which obviously it hasn't gone according to plan by Putin. And we've heard a lot about like Russian equipment being old and breaking down and stuff, right? Yeah, old, poorly maintained often. Uh, I've heard rumors that they were selling off their fuel because they thought it was an exercise, not, a, not like a real operation. Uh, so, yeah, I think a lot of their equipment is really not up to scratch in some of their, some of their tactics also. And, yeah, you're seeing those vehicles. Just get, I guess there's not much fuel on the outside to burn when they're running out of fuel. Yeah. But, uh, you're, seeing them, uh, you're seeing them get abandoned for various reasons. Speaking of James Stout about the use of Molotov cocktails in Ukraine against uh, Russian troops, a, a lot of analysts, James, have predicted a protracted urban insurgency here against Russian troops if Putin attempts some kind of long-term occupation of Ukraine, which I, I think maybe is an idea, maybe losing a, its appeal for him. But if that happened, if... If this turned into some sort of occupation of Ukraine by Russia and we get into some kind of urban insurgency, do you think like you could see more of these Molotov cocktails be being thrown by people at, at Russian troops in, in Ukrainian cities? Yeah, it's a very hard thing to deny people, isn't it? Like even in the countries with the strictest sort of gun control and arms control, most people have access to petrol and bottles and fabric. Uh, so it's very hard to stop people using them. Uh, there'll be other improvised weapons. Uh, I've seen someone in Ukraine already 3D printing firearms, for instance. But wow. uh, yeah, these are very accessible, right? It, it's not much harder to get your hands on than a rock or a stick, but it's a lot more effective than either of those things. Yeah. And are people able to make them? Like, is there is gasoline pretty widely available still in Ukraine to, to people who are trying to make weapons? I think so. I think there's enough yeah. of it. Like you could use ethanol. Uh, you could, you could use any other flammable liquid, right? So like in... Uh, in Finland, in '39, the, the state uh, liquor factories, the state liquor factories, turned to making Molotov cocktails instead of uh, whatever they were drinking before. Hey, James, you're you're a close student of uh, of European history and the situation on the ground right now. It's it feels like we're maybe at a pivotal moment in this conflict. It was interesting to hear President Zelensky say this week that indicating that maybe Ukraine would would end up not joining NATO which seemed to be kind of a, a concession a little bit. Maybe that's the off-ramp that Putin needs to get out of this. There, there are some peace talks going on. What's your gut feeling on this war right now? Do you think it could, do you think there's a way out of it diplomatically right now, or do you think it's going to drag on? Yeah, look, there's always a way out of it, and I think it's really important that we remember that, um, because like once we get sort of set on this past dependency towards conflict, it doesn't end well for anyone. Uh, so, yeah, he's made some concessions. Uh, Putin's a tough one to call, and I'm no, like, Kremlinologist, uh, nor a Russianist, but uh, I would hope that there's a way out. You, you always hope that there's a way out. I know that, like, it's a lot of people like watching these videos of tanks getting blown up, but it, it's it's really not desirable for anyone to, for us no, to be I, in a superpower conflict. I agree with you. I, I hope we do see an end to it. James, thanks for coming on with your thoughts today. I appreciate it. No worries. You're welcome.